0: and welcome to the pure report i'm your host rob ludeman and it is time to bring the orange with today's special guest doctor i think you're the first doctor i've had on the program dr devica garg our healthcare marketing manager the doctor is in Devika. how's it going today
1: Hey Rob, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Um, I, I actually excited haven't been called doctor <laughs> that many times <laughs> within 30 seconds before. My parents are actually you know physicians, and uh, so they are doctor doctors. So I always you know think that well, can I am I a doctor? But yeah, <laughs>
0: I don't know. You probably worked really long and hard to get those letters at the end of your name, and did a lot of studying and a lot of schooling. So I think it's uh, it's worthwhile. And I'm happy I mentioned it three or four times in just a, <laughs> a, a, in a quick sentence or two, because I think it's important for people to know up front, uh, just to establish credibility and what you're coming on to talk about, I hope and know for folks is going to be really, really interesting, because we are going to dive deep into the life sciences area and all the things that are are going on in that area. And I feel like just over the last year and a half, everybody has become far more familiarized with medicine, right? At least the people that are out there doing their own research on things that are COVID related, but um, there's, there's a lot of uh, interest just in research and and we're going to cover that before we jump into that and and get into some of these areas that are really interesting. uh, Talk a little bit about your background. How did, how did you get started in the life sciences space and and then I'll, I'll poke you with another question after that.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, career-wise, I feel like I've had two lives really so far. I started off in biosciences and bioengineering and then uh, kind of moved steadily towards uh, you know molecular biology and uh, genomics and uh, just the genetic basis of, of life. And uh, so I went and did my PhD at uh, the National University of Singapore. And I was looking at the genetic basis of brain and behavior in fruit flies. And so that was a really interesting time. I spent you know, six years uh, studying the genome of uh, fruit flies and looking at you know, one gene at a time within uh, their genome that, hey, uh, if you remove this gene, what happens to you know, fruit flies behavior? Um, I was looking at you know, their mating behavior. The circadian rhythm. Uh, how are they walking differently? Are they flying differently? So it was it was really really cool um, basic research that I was doing at that time.
0: And then you end up here at Pure. What was <laughs> what was that transition like? Right, because you're off studying behaviors of, of fruit flies and, and digging deep into genomics, and, and at some point something clicked where you just wanted to go be a part of a company that looks after and manages the data for a lot of these interesting projects and, and things that other folks are doing. So what, what navigated you to, to something like what you're doing today?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it, it has been a journey really. Uh, like from Starting from fruit flies, I, it was very basic research. So I moved into more translational clinical work where you're looking at human samples. And, uh, and slowly, you know, I like my career has been more of a, I think, saying yes to opportunities. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so I spent some time doing science journalism where I was, um, I I spent a lot of time, um, bringing science, like com- complicated ideas uh, back to the lay audience. And um, I worked at a couple of newspapers, magazines, and then you know slowly moved at the junction of technology and life sciences. And because I mean, just the way we do life sciences today, there's a whole lot of um, technological advancement on the biology side itself. But none of that uh, would be scaled. If it were not for the foundation, and that's something what you know Pure does so well, and uh, like all of the technology, all of the storage and innovation that we are bringing, it's kind of at the base. So, I mean, as an example, you know, when I was doing research, I would sit at um, a microscope, uh, looking at, like imaging um, fruit fly brains, right, and I would. Be like creating terabytes of data every single uh, day or something. And that was 10 years ago. And uh, for storage, like that was always, it was never, you know, the primary concern per se, but it was always there. Uh, we, we used these external hard drives and we would uh, like pile them up because um, that's where we were storing everything. Yeah. And like we, we had our lab notebooks, but then that was a pile. And then there we had the pile of our hardest drives. And uh, it was always a challenge to move the data from you know one place to my workstation, to our collaborators. And so it was kind of a... It was it was very disconnected and uh, disorienting to to work through that. And I mean, fast forward to today, the amount of data that we are generating today in life sciences is so many times more. So yeah, I mean, technology is at the basis of uh, you know everything
0: that we can accomplish. Well, it's cool that the the light turned on for you and you realize that. But it sounds like sometimes it takes a practical experience, right? Stacking up hard drives and disk drives to realize there has to be a better way. And it is interesting that in the area you're working in and around life sciences, it's all really about what's possible, right? And and certainly what we try to do at Pure is to help people go realize what's possible. And, and you know, I had intended here to ask you about the market conditions, but you really framed it really well. You framed it with the, the, you know, there's a need to harness data to understand what is happening, regardless of whether it's something around genomics or drug discovery that we'll talk about. And and certainly the role of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning, which puts another which puts another challenge into You know, taking data and and delivering outcomes. What what do you see as the role for AI and, and ML going forward? I think we're just at the beginnings of what that can do. But if this if this really blows up, can you, you know, we can probably imagine things speeding up dramatically in, in diagnosis or in drug discovery or research or whatnot? Is that one of the primary factors you see driving as long as we can harness the data, right?
1: As long as we can harness the data. I think, yeah, that's the key because I mean, there is a lot of data. uh, It's, I mean, one of the, that's one of the problems that there is a lot of data that's, that's the scale, but then it's, it's trapped in these uh, silos within um, different research organizations, within even within the organ- same organization, different teams, and um, just you know getting to a complete holistic picture, han- bringing all of that data together in a meaningful way, where you can train models and learn something new, um, have some predict like. Uh, just run AI is, is just a challenge. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things, uh, that are happening with AI and ML today. Um, and we can talk about those, uh, like as you move along. Uh, but then, I mean, it's definitely one of the, uh, biggest things that is going to happen in the next five, five, six years. It's actually going to be the bread and butter, I think.
0: Right. Well, I mean, there's the data that you're working with. Right. And that which sits in silos that the data scientists can't deal with. But then there's the data that's generated as you're doing training models and 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 doing machine learning as well. So really, it's compounding. It's building upon itself. Well, let's, let's pause that, because I do want to come back to that a little bit later, because there's a couple of interesting use cases. Um, in and around AI and ML. But first, let's let let's get a primer. Let's assume that, that many of the folks listening here are not super aware of what goes on in this space. And let's talk a little bit about one of the areas that you mentioned that you were working directly in with our, our good pals, the fruit flies, uh, in and around in and around genomics. Let's start with that, with our kind of 101 primer here. What's happening in genomics? Uh, I think we, when we talked previously to pre-brief on this you talked about powered precision medicine, uh, which I love. But but what does all that mean? What, what is the significance of genomics and research, and what can it do for us?
1: Yeah, um, so well, like, genomics is essentially the study of our DNA and just the process of reading what's in our DNA to figure out um, you know different kinds of our uh, traits right? That's like the simple thing. And then also potential disease conditions that could happen, that are happening. And um, it's it's really powering uh, precision medicine, which you said. And why is that? And what is precision medicine to begin with? Precision medicine is just the idea of um, um, having every person's genome sequenced uh, or read, and then uh, mapping that back to their unique traits and their unique disease uh, uh, conditions that that, they, that are that are happening, and um, the ability to do that has really come from um, just these significant cost reductions. From uh, like how, how you can sequence a genome today for six hundred dollars, and uh, Twenty years ago, when the first human genome was sequenced, it was it cost three hundred million dollars. Oh, so yeah. you can see the the scale at which um, that has advanced, right? And so today, I mean, anybody can go get their genome sequenced, and um, hospitals are doing that on a daily basis to identify, um, you know, very tiny changes in the genome. Um, and this is important because. Um, especially for something like cancer, every cancer is unique and uh, a single change in the genome can trigger that disease. And so you need to kind of identify what that change was in the genome in order to uh, target the right treatment. And that's that's what is personalized medicine or precision medicine, and then there could be rare diseases, right? And uh, where you really don't know what's going on, and so again, you need to go back to that uh, that DNA manual, right? And just really figure out what what's happening to to tailor the right treatment. Um, so the scale at which genomic data is being produced today, it's, uh, it's I think it's doubling every seven months, and by 2025, I think the prediction is that it will go to close to like 40 exabytes per year so uh, that's unprecedented and i think it's going to cross uh, like astronomy data and other types of you know big data that uh, that we already think of as big uh, so and genomics is going to take, really take the pie
0: well, that's massive, and I, I love that you put some dollar amounts on what it was 20 years ago versus now, but also probably the speed at which you can do that compared to 20 years ago. Right? That 300 million dollars probably was a much longer time horizon to get all the work done, and of course we have great things like Moore's Law that are in, improving uh, ultimately the computing power that we have. I mean, it is transistor based, but you know the the amount of computation required to do that now versus 20 years, uh, it, we can. Can get so much more done and handle all the data that goes with it. Uh, you you mentioned when we talked before. There's there's a couple sides to this, right? There's a clinical side and a lab side. And I guess I'll ignore the the commercial part now because I know there's these companies that advertise on the web and out on you know where you can send in is it send in a, a DNA sample and they can they can sequence things. We'll not talk about those for now, but and keep it to the the medical side. But but clinic and lab are they doing different types of things? Like what? What are the differences relative to that?
1: So yeah, I mean, at the clinic, um, it's really close to the patient and uh, the disease condition that is being investigated. And so like I mentioned cancer, mm-hmm. um, and so you want to I- isolate the cause and so just so you can give the right drug, right, the right treatment. Right. And so doctors would order tests like that um, to really identify that. And uh, again, with rare conditions, and then the other one is um, other important thing is infectious diseases. So, um, so just being able to identify uh, sometimes what the infectious agent is, what bacteria, what virus uh, is it that that has infected somebody? You need to do um, you need to go back to the sequence to to do that identification. Um, on the lab side, it's more you know just understanding our um, our world around us. And uh, so a lot of it is related to plant biology. So sequence like uh, looking at our biodiversity, and again. Um- I mean, normally without, a, without the ability to read the genome, you would just look at the external traits of a plant or an, a new species, right? Uh, well, it looks like this, or uh, it's a different color and whatnot, and this is the behavior. But then uh, with genomics, you can be really, really specific and really uh, catalog biodiversity that way. So a lot of, on, on the research side, that's what goes on. Um, yeah, so that, that's in the lab.
0: And, and we're doing some of this, I, I think we want to talk a little bit about what's happening at McMaster University, right? Where they're, you know, are using a pure solution and it is, it is, you know, COVID related. I mean, there's other things that they were doing, but this is a, a great example, you know, in, in FlashBlade of where they're doing this, this real time research and diagnosis, just expand on that a little bit more, just give people flavor for what they're doing.
1: Yeah, so McMaster is uh, McMaster University. uh, One of the labs over there, uh, Andrew MacArthur's lab. There, they focus on infectious disease research, and um, I mean they've been cataloging genomes of uh, infectious (laughs) agents uh, over time, and so they're they're mutating. The genes are changing all the time, right? Um, And so that's what they were doing. And when COVID hit they basically turned their attention to to that virus and um, they helped sequence the virus. And uh, they've been very, very instrumental in uh, in tracking the changes that Mm -hmm. are happening within the virus. So all of these variants, right? Right. That that we've been hearing of and uh, have been experiencing. um, uh, So just just how is that virus changing over time? Um, Is that making it more contagious? or more severe, or both? How could that affect vaccine efficacy? You know, those kinds of uh, questions, they're all um, answers to those. A lot of those answers are within the sequence of that virus, right? And so McMaster uh, uh, University, their, their lab over there, they use FlashBlade to power a lot of this work. And it's amazing. I mean, they've seen up to almost, you know, 24 times improvement in the speed. So, so they were able to go from, you know, a couple of days to just a couple of hours. And um, that really, really just, um, I think it, it just, it was game changing for them.
0: Yeah, no, it certainly makes a difference, right? When we're trying to track globally the, the variants that might emerge and, and how to respond or deal with those to have real-time processing capabilities that they cited versus delays or waiting, I mean, that that directly equates to, to lives, right? So I think that's really interesting and significant. And so let let's hit to a second area, which also is is significant and deals with <laughs> deals with impact on lives. But uh, let's talk a little bit about drug discovery. That's right, another area that I know you focus in and around, and effectively, you know, what we're talking about is testing out new drugs to to support and and solve for certain conditions. But this has never been an easy area, right? For those companies or for those scientists to do. It's something that's taken long uh, to accomplish and to carry out. Why is that? What are the conditions that make bringing a drug to market? Forget about the regulatory stuff, but the actual science behind it. What what makes it so challenging to to you know to actually do the science and do the research?
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, drug discovery is definitely an arduous process, and a lot of it is um, just finding the right drug to test. Um, and uh, and that's the early early part of uh, the whole regulatory process. And um, you know, you would do that. I mean, think of drug discovery as a, lock in key type of model hmm. you know so essentially uh, your drug is the key and uh, the lock is um, the protein within your body in which that key needs to fit for for that drug to be able to work effectively and so um, traditionally how like looking for that key, that right key that would fit has been done in the lab using lots and lots of experiments, which are slow. So you would like basically have a library of keys, right? And uh, you'll just basically try and test out that does this key work? Does that key work? And that that takes a long time and doing all of that chemistry, right? And uh, what we're able to do now and for, for a few uh, years now actually is like 3D modeling and 3D simulation. And so you're able to, simulate the this fitting uh, the lock and key fitting uh, on, like in 3d and um, so that really speeds up things and uh, but as you can imagine it will it takes a lot of compute power it takes a lot of in, like underlying infrastructure for that to be able to really run and um, so uh, but it is an effective um, technique for pharma companies, anybody who wants to bring the new drug to market. So the more they can uh, accelerate that early process, the greater the chance of their success. So they can spend they can uh, yeah, they can save time and money on that early step and um, increase their chances of uh, like success at the end.
0: Yeah, I love the lock and key analogy that really helps me, right, as a, as, as a non-expert in this area to, to understand what that, what that process actually deals with. And I have been in and around you know, high-performance computing HPC environments for, for quite a while in my career, and I know they are heavily compute-focused. And you can throw a lot of compute at a problem, but again, it comes back to the, the data access, right? The ability to actually use the data that's there and available efficiently and throwing more compute at the problem. Doesn't always solve it if if you haven't dealt with the with the you know either the I/O bottleneck or the the networking bottleneck of of moving and shifting the data around. And so again, this is another area where you know Flashblade ends up being a really really nice fit for these HPC environments. And we've had some really interesting success. Uh, we did some press, I think, uh, with with Folding at Home. I believe it was about a year ago. And while they've pivoted a little bit to COVID since that came out, I know a lot of their other research and, and some of their breakthroughs were in areas around, you know, around Alzheimer's and and Ebola and antibiotic resistant infections. But this is one of those that was one where we, you know, we, we had some success in getting Flashblade and folding at home. Any other insights around, around that one that you think are interesting since that's one that sits in your space?
1: Yeah, I mean, Folding at Home, they run as a consortium and uh, they essentially like, uh, you can lend your laptop compute to help understand, uh, you know, protein function better uh, with Folding at Home. And uh, so, I mean, they're connected to all of these computers around the world and that are feeding all of this modeling data back. And uh, they, they didn't have a space that was large enough to, to hold that data to perform, um, you know, further advanced analytics on that data, right? And so, Flash Blade really proved to be like the lifesaver for that project. And um, so, and like you said, I mean, they pivoted to COVID. Um, I think most life sciences organizations did that over the last in the last couple of years. Um, and um, yeah, they were pretty pivotal in, underst- in helping to understand the the spike protein of the, of the virus. Um, and that's the protein where uh, all of these vaccines are targeted. So it was very important to understand that protein structure properly in order to be able to move anywhere.
0: Yeah, this is a really interesting story, and I, I'll just be clear for everybody listening: this is a flashblade that I believe we we here at Pure donated right to, to Folding at Home and to their cause. So there was some altruism that was involved within this, but also taking the model of using people's un, unused compute cycles, almost like SETI, if everybody remembers SETI and you know the search for extraterrestrial life, which uses background compute cycles. This was another one of those types of, of things, and it's been really fun to track and and view what what they are actually doing but great to see a company like pure stepping up and and uh, you know allowing them to harness the power of flashblade to support all the the work that they're doing and if you want to check that out further you can just do a quick search on Uh, Blog, Pure Storage and Folding at Home. It's a really interesting read. There's an interview with our our lead of the FlashBlade business unit, Matt Burr, and an individual from Folding at Home just about some more of the insights and some of the metrics. Quite fascinating, but a really good example here in this drug discovery space of, of how and where Pure can be used and leveraged to handle some of those challenges. And now we bring it back a little bit full circle because we got a little bit started early on AI and ML. And I want to dive into that because that seems to be the really interesting and exciting uncharted territory. I've probably told this story on prior podcast, so for, for longtime listeners, I apologize if you're hearing it again, but it occurred to me, and this was back in 2013, 2014, maybe six or seven years ago, and I, I went to Australia to meet with some, some research folks and university individuals, and it was all around AI initiatives and analytics, and I got to chatting with one of the professors there, and I was blown away because he had been enlisted by China the country of China, and given something like 500 million patient records and to go off and do a project where he and a team were going to feed all of that patient data in and then start building these AI models and and do machine learning to effectively speed up diagnosis of severe diseases. Right. So, you know, patient comes into hospital now after they can execute that project, you can actually understand with the early diagnoses what the high probability outcome or high probability problem may be. And I was just blown away. 500 million patient records, you know, being just put into a box and then training models. And I don't know where they are on the project. I've lost track with them, but that's the type of exciting thing, Devika, that I think is possible, right? Again, it's back to what is possible. What are some of the, the use cases that you see that are interesting for artificial intelligence? Like, Where is that gonna have an impact? And perhaps it's based on some of the things we've already talked about, right? Cancer research, detection, etc. cetera.
1: Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically understanding population health, uh, mm-hmm. the, like the example you mentioned, uh, that's big. Uh, right. Just feed all of that data in and try to understand, like look at patterns and uh, of common diseases. And just so you can, uh, you know, group patient, a new patient better, right. Based on that, like, where would my, where might they fit within all the different buckets? Um, how can we move them quicker through the treatment pipeline, based on what we understand about all of these, uh, the population level uh, data. Um, And then you mentioned early cancer detection, right? And that's that's a big, big thing. And a lot of it is based on imaging and um, just, uh, you know, uh, harness the power of um, AI um, to identify uh, and stratify tumors. In images, and uh, a lot of it, this is you know, as an assistant to physicians, and um, uh, so you can kind of really hone in on where the tumor might be, whether or not it is there, those kinds of things, and um, and then early cancer detection, uh, and AI also cross paths with genomics itself. Again, you can. Um, you can get a lot of data around genomics from many, many different patients together, and then look look for patterns. Are there similarities? Are there differences in different types of cancers? Um, and uh, again, same similar for blood markers. So you can basically take any type of diagnostic technology and then run AI on that. Um, and so that that's I think the biggest one. Then. Um, and there's a lot of other things. Um, like we already talked about drug drug uh, right. drug discovery. So, and we talked about the lock and key model, right? And the keys being all these different possible drugs uh, to any new condition. So now, um, just building that library of keys. Um, so you can you can do a uh, you can do an AI driven synthesis of uh, new types of molecules like that. And uh, so so then you're not relying on uh, chemistry experiments in the lab, but you're you're doing running that uh, with AI, and um, so that's big as well. There's a whole lot of startups in this space right now, um, and then um, there's you know assembling the patient's complete picture mm. um, from all different kinds of records. I think we kind of touched upon this in some yeah. of our previous examples, and that's that's again like one of the big use cases right now with AI.
0: Yeah, I think the imaging one is, is super interesting to, to go back to that because I think a lot of people's perception of diagnosing the images perhaps pulled from something like Grey's Anatomy, right? Where they stick the image in and there's a lit up wall and the doctors kind of point at it and go, Hey, look at that. And really, I think what we're seeing go on now is you're, you're allowing the computer models to assist, right. Or even make that initial diagnosis or, Hey, it looks like this. We know from, from viewing past images that this is probably what it is. And we're seeing, and then, and it's, you know, not replacing the human element of judgment in it, but is, it is adding another Useful piece of input, and this is an area we would love helping, uh, love helping companies out, right? And particularly if we we get into PAX, right? I mean, PAX is one of those spaces that's growing by leaps and bounds for us here at Pure. It's huge data, it's huge files. And we've got you know multiple solutions. Whether it's you know we see Flash Array C going in here or FlashBlade going in here, um, this is this is a big one uh, with with AI. And since I'm, I'm loving how we're kind of tying in some some use cases and customers into this, uh, Page AI right is is another one from the past that we we talked quite a bit about, and that's one where we actually use the the NVIDIA joint solution called ARI uh, into that. Can you talk a little bit about you have some familiar with Page AI? Like yeah, that absolutely.
1: one's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, imaging data comes in so many flavors. Like, uh, you mentioned X-rays, MRIs. A lot of that goes into packs. And then uh, you have, on the other hand, like digital pathology, which is um, like pathology slides, and um, those have been like slower to move into the digital realm. And so, uh, what Page is doing is, I mean, they have a whole library of digital pathology images. And uh, those are huge, and uh, they store those on. They're using flash and I mean, they're using the like airy uh, reference architecture that you mentioned, and uh, so they're storing all the data on the flash plate, and then running uh, machine learning algorithms on all of those uh, images to understand uh, and identify prostate cancer. And in fact, I think about a month ago, they they got a they got the first FDA approval for any kind of a digital pathology based AI product wow. and uh, so they can I mean you can now physicians can use um, this AI model as an assistant to you know identifying um, uh, the degree and the presence of cancer prostate cancer in slides slide tissue examples. Uh, and so th- that's a big one and um, I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, super interesting example, and I think it's something like 25. And this was as of a year or so ago. There was something like 25 million images, right? That they were they were working with and dealing with. So just a huge, huge data set that uh, that we could we could go off and help them solve. Well, thanks for sharing on that, and just in general, a primer that hopefully everybody here found super interesting to get your expertise as solutions experts that we are. We're constantly looking ahead. So what? do you see that's interesting and emerging? Obviously, it's gonna be more the same of what we're describing and talking about here today, but what are some of the things that you're keeping an eye on in this space that have you you interested or excited?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, just to touch touch again on AI spend, I mean, I think AI spend is just increasing and it will continue to increase in life sciences. Uh, The other thing is um, hybrid cloud. So hybrid cloud adoption is pretty big, and and the reason why that is is um, life sciences companies. I mean, they, they need to store a lot of their data on prem, but they also want to leverage the cloud for all of the good um, good features that cloud has to offer. Uh, so they're never going to get rid of their data on prem completely, but they're always going to need that that synergy. And uh, like hybrid cloud adoption is what we're seeing quite a bit happen within big pharma and uh, smaller companies also. Um, and I'd say population genomics is really starting to dominate uh, precision medicine. And it's uh, just that that example from Australia you were talking about, but mm-hmm. apply that to just genomics data and uh, just really trying to understand healthy states, understand disease states, all at a population level. And that's really going to, Demand more and more storage and compute resources. Uh, yeah, so I think that's kind of like the um, definitely like forward looking picture that I see for life sciences.
0: Yes, for sure, and hybrid cloud is is always one of those that you know we see happening, right? And so this is no no surprise, right? That you see adoption. It may just be trailing a little bit behind what some of the other industries maybe were were forced to do. Well, the, the last thing I'll ask you, just because I'm curious, in case people are interested in in learning more on their own, are there any are there publications or news sites that you frequent uh, normally to to keep up to date? Just in case people want to go check that out. What are, what are the top couple of things that you look at on a regular basis just to keep up with the news in the space?
1: Um, yeah, so I would say Genome Web is a really good one for genomics. And then we have uh, Fierce Pharma. So uh, so they're, they're really good in general for all, anything pharma, like all of the different developments happening there. And then uh, the more specific um, one is BioIT World. And okay. um, so, yeah, they, they focus on that. App on the junction of IT and life sciences quite a bit. And uh, that's the place to look out for you know, what's next?
0: (laughs) That's great. No, that's great. I know a number of our listeners are somewhat self-actualized. And so I wanted to provide that opportunity for anybody that wanted to go learn a little bit more about this really exciting and fast moving and revolutionary space. It's a, it's a fantastic space. I appreciate all your insights and your expertise. I'm glad we finally got to get you on here and let's do it again in the near future as things evolve. Thanks for coming on, Debika.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. It was a blast. And if you out there listening want to check out more about what Pure is doing specifically in this area, there is a vanity URL set up, purestorage.com slash life sciences, all one word at the end of that. It's our vanity URL. And you can check that out. You can also go to blog.peerstorage.com and do a search on Devika's name and find out the latest things that she's been blogging about. And thank you out there for listening. Please keep the comments coming and the feedback on episodes. And we'll keep the great guests like Devika coming onto the program for you. And with that, we will wrap for Pure Storage and Devika Garg. This is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you.